I am so glad to be able to start another sermon series. I'm always excited when I start sermon series because I never really know how it's going to turn out. And then I'm always sad at the end because I'm like, oh, that was the best one ever. There'll never be another one like that. But you know, this book has good stuff. And so the, the sermon series that we're going to start today is called Good News People because we are good news people. As you look around the world, the, the world could use some good news, could it not? Who has the corner on that market? There's your Sunday school answer, Jesus, right? So if we know Jesus' good news and we're not sharing it, then the world just got a little darker. But if we live a life that shares the good news of Jesus Christ, then the world looks more like his kingdom and not this world. So that's my encouragement to us this morning, that we would study to become good news people and that the lives that we live would result in the sharing of that good news. So let me start with a, a simple question. Have you ever looked at someone and thought to yourself, how can they be so dense? <laughs> right? I love the Far Side cartoon. I wish Gary Larson was still doing this. This is one of my all-time favorites. If you can't see the small print, it says Midvale School for the Gifted. And this kid, who is obviously a student, a gifted student, is pushing as hard as he can on the door, clearly marked pull. <laughs> right? How could he be so dense? It's so obvious, isn't it? Maybe you've experienced people that you just kind of shake your head at. How could they be so dense? I remember walking into a, a room one time. Uh, a couple of young lieutenants were setting up a briefing for the, the commander. So this is kind of a big deal, right? And I got the sense that things were not going well. And this was back in the day before we had all this fancy stuff. You, know, you remember the projectors that you plugged the laptop into? Yeah, okay. It's just right next to stone tablets being chiseled out. But anyway, so they're, they're plugging in the laptop. They're doing all that. I can tell it's not going well, right? Because like the, the, the controls aren't working, the, the, the light's not coming on, you know, the, I don't know what's going on, I'm pushing the power button, all this stuff. And uh, you know, it's easy to stand back and look at this, right? Because you, know, you can see everything. And I said, um, so did you think to plug it in? How can you be so dense, right? And, and at that moment, I thought, well, that was an easy fix because once you plug it in, it all works. And then my second thought was, we are doomed. This is the future of your national security, right? No, but anyway, we got it all in. The brief went fine. But sometimes people just, you just scratch your head. How could they be so thick? And maybe you've seen this. And, you know, that's a funny example, but there are, are drastic examples every day. How could people be so dense? You watch lives start to unravel. Why do they keep hanging around those people that are dragging them down? Why do they keep doing those things that are ruining their relationships? Why do they keep going back to that thing that's clearly become an addiction and is affecting every aspect of their lives? How can they be so dense? Well, that's what I want to look at, not how can we be so dense. <laughs> But how can we get past that? Because there's a world where this is such a subtle thing, and it will drag us in. And before you know it, somebody may be looking at us thinking, how can they be so dense? Can they not see clearly? And the answer is no, this world is designed to help us not see clearly. But fortunately, we have a guide, and that guide is trustworthy and true. So we're going to set the stage for us this morning uh, Every once in a while, you, you meet somebody whose life is just falling apart. And sometimes it's just absolutely self-destructive. Like you can just watch somebody disintegrate. But I would say more often than not, it's more like an annoyance. And we're not totally falling apart, but we do have some self-destructive behaviors. 
And so what I want to address this morning is our ability to see those clearly and then respond to them. And I will argue that our response to the things that try to take us apart can become our strongest witness, if we'll allow it. And you may be wondering, how does that work? Me too. Let's see how this goes. We're going to set the stage this morning with Jesus. Now, here's the stage. Jesus has just been through the wilderness. He has been tempted by Satan, and this marks his official start of ministry. So he has just been through this tremendous experience. He has beaten the devil. He has launched on ministry. This is obviously a high point for him. This is the beginning where all things are exciting. He goes back to his hometown, and he goes to his hometown synagogue where he's asked to read the scrolls. And guess what scroll they hand him? Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is not a small scroll. It's not a small book in the Bible, right? So Jesus opens it right to the perfect spot to begin his ministry. And that's where we pick up today. We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. And I'm going to let Matt uh, run the slides as we go. This is Jesus when it says he, and this is what it says. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And upon the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. These are the words of God for the people of God. And for these words, we are grateful. Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the kid that we watched come up through Sunday school? The one that we used to have to chase out of the synagogue for crawling under the pews? Isn't this Joseph's son that we used to have to scurry back home when it was time for dinner? Yeah, but it's more than just Joseph's son. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell him in his words. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. There is something special happening as, be, as Jesus begins his ministry. It's not just another ordinary day at church. And folks, if we do this right, this is not just an ordinary day in church either. There is power here. There is something unique here. If we will reach out and grasp it, and by the power of the Spirit, we can see that and begin to understand that. But I want to look at a couple of words in particular when it says, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Now, depending on who you listen to, people will argue what that means. Some will say, well, he's just an eloquent speaker, and he was so good that people were just amazed. And then others will say, well, they're, they're amazed at the gracious words. Because listen to, I mean, who doesn't want this, uh, you know, proclaiming good news, freedom for prisoners, sight for the blind, set the oppressed free? That's grace, right? That's not deserved. That's grace. But here's the thing, and this is the thing I always tell you, word serve, when you read the Bible, context is king. 
And so you have to read in circles. Read a little bit before, a little bit after. Read a little more before, a little bit more after. And pretty soon you're reading in circles and you get the full context because if you keep reading this, you would think that Jesus, you know, Joseph's boy, who came to his hometown and said, hey, good news, freedom, freedom from oppression, blind are going to see, that that would be a good thing. But keep reading, and less than 10 verses later, you'll find that these same people are trying to throw Jesus off a cliff and stone him. They were amazed, all right, but they weren't too happy with this message. Now, why weren't they happy? What made them so sure that they wanted to take this Joseph's son and stone him to death right there? Well, Jesus doesn't, uh, doesn't hold back as Jesus is wont to do. He tells the truth. And he basically tells them, hey, a prophet's no good in his own hometown because here's what you people do to prophets in their hometowns. You disregard them. God sends you this message through prophets and you ignore them. And they're basically powerless because you don't take it into your heart and live it out. The prophets have no power in their hometown. And so you may think that because I'm from your town, I'm going to be doing you some favors. Well, guess what? I can't. Because you people don't believe in me. Not the way that you, that you need to, to experience this power from God. And he says some other things as Jesus is wont to do. And the end result is they literally try to take him out, throw him off a cliff, and stone him. Now, just a couple of interesting things here. Uh, taking someone out to the highest point and throwing them off, uh, off the cliff. Doesn't that sound familiar? Jesus has just been there in the temptation. Took him to the highest point in the temple and said, jump off, God will save you. Now, so Jesus is not unfamiliar with this. But here's the other interesting thing. In the ancient times, the way the law worked, the best way to stone someone, uh, this is not a how-to class, <laughs> okay, just for done. The best way to stone someone was to take them and throw them off the cliff first, because that kind of immobilizes them, and then you drop the stones on top of them, because you can only get so much velocity this way, but man, can you get some serious velocity going downhill. And then when you're sure that they're dead, you take them back up out of that cliff and you put them on the highest point and you put them on a post so that everyone can see that you do not break the law here. Does that sound familiar? That's a foreshadowing of Jesus' rejection and death on the cross. And Jesus knows that that's coming, but he also knows that it's not his time. And the most inexplicable thing of this whole text, as you continue to read it, is, yeah, there was a crowd there. They're all looking for him. They wanted to kill him, and he just kind of walked through them and got away. See, Jesus is ninja that way. <laughs> That's Holy Spirit ninja stuff right there. That's black belt level, right? I don't know how that works, but it worked. It was not his time. But imagine hearing that good news and less than 10 verses later saying, yeah, that's great news. Well, I want to kill you. <laughs> this makes no sense until you recognize what they were doing as they began to reject Christ. So uh, if you look at how they, they voted here, they were definitely not approving of his message. They rejected him so much that they wanted to kill him. And here's the hard truth that we need to face even today. If we reject Christ, we reject freedom. If we reject Christ, we reject freedom. Now, forgiveness sounds good. Everybody wants forgiveness, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm forgiven, great. But is that freedom? Freedom is a whole different thing, folks. Freedom is a whole process that Jesus wants to work in and through us. But freedom is worth it. Freedom is wonderful. 
But if we reject Christ, we reject freedom. You may not be thinking so, but let me walk you through how Jesus dealt with the way that these same people, the Jewish people, were living in that time. I put the text, uh, part of the text up on the left there, and it's what we already read, so it's nothing new. But I just want to hit some of these highlights. Because when you think about uh, you know, preaching deliverance to the poor, well, the Jewish people, some were poor, but they didn't really think of themselves as poor. They were God's chosen people. They were sons of Abraham. They were the ones who were inheriting the kingdom of God. They were the ones who had it all. But they were poor in their spirit. And not by, like the Beatitudes type poor in their spirit. They were, they were pretty arrogant about what they had. They were not humble about this at all. In fact, uh, Jesus has some words for them, as Jesus is wont to do. Uh, let me read a couple here. He says to uh, the teachers, the Pharisees, in the, the temple steps in Matthew 23, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So who is really poor here? They're trying to hang on to their tradition, even though it's making them spiritually poor. They don't like that. They didn't like this either. Captives. Well, Jesus has some words for that too when it talks about the Jewish system in 13 and 14. He's talking specifically to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. He says, you shut the doors of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let any enter who are trying to. And that kind of sounds like prison to me. Getting a door shut in your face, not being able to reach the kingdom of heaven. And that's, that's captivity. And they're reinforcing that captivity by their legal system and their unwillingness to extend grace. And by, by, by the way, they're also upset that Jesus is talking about grace for everyone. What they want is grace for them and justice for everyone else. That's, that's what I want too, if I'm honest. <laughs> but Jesus' grace is big enough to extend to everyone. The, the third one, it says, uh, you're blind, you're living in darkness. Now, you may, well, okay, does that directly translate to what they're doing? Well, again, Jesus has some words for this. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. Now, there's a way to win friends and influence people. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and then you make them twice the convert, or you make the convert twice as much a child of hell as you are. And listen to this. Woe to you, blind guides. And we have a saying that the blind leading the blind. There's a lot of blindness going on in just Jewish culture, and Jesus can see it, but they don't like to see that. And then finally, the oppressed. Jesus has words for the Pharisees about that too, so you must be uh, careful. Actually, he's talking to the disciples at this point about the Pharisees. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they, practice, they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Israel is poor. They are captive. They are blind, led by the blind, and they are oppressed by heavy loads that the Pharisees are putting on them. Jesus is describing them, but they don't want to hear that. They would rather silence that voice. I ask again, how could they be so dense? Right? It's easy for us to look back on this because we have the rest of the story. We know who Jesus is. We know what he does. We know what he stands for. So it's easy for us to stand in judgment today and look back on them and go, man, they, they just didn't get it. 
But folks, I got some good news and bad news because I'm not sure that we get it either. You don't believe me? Let's look at this list again. Today, Luke 4, 16 through 22, applied to today. He's coming to free the poor. Well, who are the poor? I would say that while we don't have much physical poverty in our area, and, and in fact, some of the physical poverty that was in the area when words are started here is being pushed out by developers. So we see less and less of it. Every once in a while, you catch a glimpse through things like faithful kids, but it's reducing. But you know what I see that's actually increasing? I see spiritual poverty. Well, let's be honest. We, we don't really want for anything physical here. If something breaks, we buy a new one. If a car breaks down, we buy a new one. We have a house that we don't worry about, electricity, heat, air conditioning. We're very comfortable. We don't worry about where the next meal is coming from because, you know, I've, I've seen some of you shoot, man, and if we were relying on you for hunting, we'd all die. But you know, we just go to the grocery store, right? <laughs> we go to the grocery store, and, and there's rarely a shortage unless a storm is coming or unless COVID happens and you need to get your toilet paper first. But there's rarely anything... <laughs> that we need that we don't just go get, right? So physical poverty is not a problem, but here's how I know that spiritual poverty is. Look around us. Look at the rates of divorce. Look at bullying in schools. Look at trends that are introduced by things like TikTok and, and things that say, hey, kids, you know the cool thing to do is to destroy the school bathrooms. Yeah, let's go do that. To what end? Where is this acceptable? We have lost our way spiritually, morally. We are poor. And when you think about you know, this poor people that we take pity on, this generational poverty, and you think of people living in dirt shacks and all that stuff, I think they're looking at us saying, these poor, generationally, spiritually, poverty-stricken people, they've lost their way. Have you ever been on a mission trip to a third world country? And... By the time you leave there, <clears throat> you recognize that they've ministered to you more than you've ministered <laughs> to them. We tell the story sometimes of a living water trip we took to drill a well, and, and at the end of this, this trip, there were a few people that kind of, you know, teary-eyed, you know, they're departing and everything, and somebody asked them, well, what, why are you crying? So I, I mean, it was a wonderful time that we spent together. He goes, I'm not crying for us. I'm crying for you. Because I watched you disconnect from the world. I, I watched you come to life here, and, and I think you're going to go back to what you knew, and it was not a good place for you. <clears throat> right in the heart. Who's really poor? Captives. John 8, 34 says, if you, are, uh, if you sin, you are a slave to sin. Even Paul recognizes, hey, I do what I don't want to do, and when I want to do, I don't do. If we are sinning, if we are in a state of sin, we are slaves to that sin. And maybe you have experienced this in some small degree. I pray that no one has experienced it to the, the rate of self-destruction. But if you look at how this works, there's actually chemistry behind this. You know, people always say science or religion. No, I say science and religion. There's things called neuropathways that get formed. And when we have bad habits, those neuropathways are like highways that are well-traveled. And it's like a rut in the brain. And the easiest thing for your brain to do is go with the flow. And so if there's a consistent, habitual sin, guess what? It's being imprinted in our brains, and our brains are directing our actions. We are captives to that sin, and, and addiction is a great example on the extreme end. I, I pray that it hasn't destroyed anyone, but we all have varying degrees of that. 
We all have neural pathways that are being formed right now. Now, the good news is you can reform those pathways. They don't have to stay that way. But more on that later. Blind. I would say we don't see. In fact, the whole reason Jesus came, do you remember the word that described his coming? The people in darkness have seen a great light. Right? That's what he came for, for this understanding. But as I look at the world around us, there seems to be more darkness than light, at least that I can pick out. I see it in the way people relate to each other, the polarization of our country, the inability to sit down and have a civil discussion, the inability to love neighbor as self, probably because we've forgotten to love God above all else. I see oppression. I'm not going to ask for a survey of how many people are in debt right now. <laughs> as I always say, I'm chief among you. But if you look at the debt, the, the average credit card, I was looking for some statistics, and it's incredible. The average family is $200,000 in debt. Now you're thinking, well, I'm not so bad. <laughs> or you're thinking, oh, I've got to catch up. No, I don't know what you're thinking. <laughs> it's not a contest, people. It's not a contest. But we have so much debt, and it's, that's just financial debt. But I think about the image. I think about the way that we have to present ourselves to the world. I think of the image of the supermom that has to take care of the perfect house, has to have the professional career, has to always be put together. Her kids have to be on time, on place, and on point. I think of the dads that also, they, they've got to do their thing. They've got to work. They've got to be the coach or, the, or the whatever that they do. They've got to fix things around the house, whatever it is that, that we're doing. But we have to be perfect. We have to live in this perfect image, and it is oppressive. Nowhere in the Bible do I read, if you do all these things well, then God will love you. So God loves you right where you are. He's come to set the oppressors uh, to take that load. And, and what I would say about <clears throat> the way that we deal with oppression, that Jesus has some words for that too. And notice when Jesus talks to the Pharisees, his words are harsh and, and correcting. When Jesus talks to the rest of us, his words are gracious and loving. And when it comes to oppression, he says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke. My yoke is light and easy. That sounds like a way to get out of oppression, but I have to be open to that. So what does all this mean? Well, <clears throat> how do I deal with this? I, I would recommend that we do something and we take this seriously. Word, sir. We're coming up on a season called Lent. Lent is a 40 days prior to Easter, and Lent is a time, a season of repentance and reflection. Lent is a time to reconnect with our spiritual roots. And so here's some suggestions that I would have. I would just admit, let's face the spiritual poverty that we live in. I wish I were spiritually richer. I, and we can be through Jesus Christ. But we have to be humble enough to recognize that we don't have everything we need. We can't love the way Jesus commands us to love, absent the Father and the Holy Spirit. So let's just admit that. Let's just be the humble one that gets exalted and not the proud one that gets humbled. Admit that as we prepare for Lent. Are you captive to something? I'm not asking for specifics. This is a rhetorical question. Has something got you that it just will not let you go? You can't not do it, and you know it's not good. You know it's unraveling you. You know it's affecting relationships, either at work or at home or at school, but you can't stop. I got a proposal for us. Take that thing that holds you captive and give it up for Lent. Just 40 days, just an experiment. 
if it doesn't make our lives better, and I say our lives because it affects all of us, if it doesn't make our lives better, I'll give you your money back. And so will Jesus. Blindness. Well, hey, WordServe has this thing called community groups. It's a great place to see some enlightenment. We just finished a whole series on how to read the Bible, and I proposed some Bible reading plans online. So if you want to see the light and not be in the dark, check out a Bible reading plan or a community group. And if you think about oppression, give that weight to Jesus through prayer. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, not rest like the world gives. At the end of the day, we have uh, the corollary to consider. If, indeed, if we reject Christ, we reject freedom, then the opposite must also be true. Because if we accept Christ, we accept real freedom. We're sort of let that begin with us. Let that begin right here, right now, as we accept Christ. And then let us be people of good news. To the glory of the Father, in the name of the Son, and by the power of the Spirit.